I had a, a text from a, a friend this week. He was uh, with his family uh, at Euro Disney and uh, he wrote uh, these words on uh, the text. Uh, um, he, he says, in the queue for Splash Mountain. Now, Splash Mountain, if you've never been to Disney, is simply one of the rides there. It's a big ride, a long queue. In the queue for Splash Mountain, wish you were here. I instantly texted back, in the queue at Ikea, I wish I was there. Uh, we we kind of love that sentiment, don't we, when we're on holiday, wish you were here. Um, you know, we, we put it on postcards, you know, weather lovely, wish you were here. My brother sent me a postcard some years back with the slightly amended word, wording, weather here, wish you were lovely, but uh, that's the sort of thing uh, my brother does. Um, now, Matthew, as he writes his gospel, writes it for those who, who couldn't be there, who wish we were there. Those of us who weren't born at the right time, in the right place, and who couldn't be there to hear the remarkable words that Jesus spoke or the amazing things that Jesus did. Matthew wrote his Gospel as a a timeless postcard from Palestine so that we, 2,000 years later, would know what Jesus said, what he did, and therefore um, who he is. And so as we turn in a moment to Matthew's Gospel, I'm going to pray for us that uh, that would be true, that we would read these words and that we would be able to uh, know the very living Lord Jesus they speak of. Let's pray now. Now, Father, we thank you for Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We thank you that as he wrote it, he wrote it not only for his first readers but uh, for us today and for all those who've lived between now and then. And uh, as we read it today, we pray that it would become fresh to us, that indeed as we look at it, we would see Jesus walking off the page of Scripture and right into our lives. And indeed we pray as we meet with the living God, as we meet the living Lord Jesus in his word, what we've been singing of would be true for us, that we would have this hope of sin forgiven, of eternal life, because of you. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, let me encourage you then to turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 8, uh, page 972 is the uh, page number that uh, we had read for us just a little bit earlier. You might like also to uh, turn um, to uh, one of these handouts that you've been given uh, on the back of the one that says Songs During Communion. There's uh, an outline uh, of uh, this sermon. Uh, which might help you to see where we're going. And if you like doing these things, if you grab hold of a pen, you can take some notes as well. Matthew chapter 8 then and verse 10. When Jesus heard this, that is the words of the centurion in verses 8 and 9. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Uh, During my first uh, curacy, I met a man named Ian, who in time became uh, a friend of mine. We first met when I went to visit him and his wife as they were thinking about having their baby baptised. He wasn't a Christian. His wife was. I knew her because she was part of the church family, but he never came to church. And his wife had told me that he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. But wonderfully, through the process of thinking about having the baby baptised, he did become a Christian. And sometime later, as we were chatting about why he became a Christian, he said this, I was really shocked when you told me I wouldn't be going to heaven. I thought I was a good guy, moral, hard-working, honest, never been in trouble with the police. I couldn't believe that I wouldn't be going to heaven when I die. In fact, I was really angry with you when you said it. 
he said to me. See, people don't like being told that they're not going to heaven when they die. Now, if Ian was angry at that suggestion, and he was, just imagine how you and I would feel. We who attend church regularly, we who consider ourselves part of God's people, part of his family, just imagine how you would feel if someone said that you wouldn't be going to heaven when you die. That's one of the great surprises in our Bible passage. Well, the great surprise is that it isn't just anyone saying it, it is Jesus Speaking of the final judgment day, look what Jesus says in verse 12. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The subjects of God's kingdom, thrown out of God's kingdom, thrown into a lost eternity. These are astonishing words. But then the whole passage is full of astonishing things. Come back to the beginning of the passage and, and be Astonishing, And our first point on the handout, the astonishing faith of the centurion, verses 5 to 10. Verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. Those two verses set the scene well and we do well to dwell on them for a moment. They tell us a lot about this man. He was an army man, a Roman centurion. And so crucially for us as we read this, we should note that he wasn't a Jewish man. Matthew is quite deliberately shocking his first readers here. The first readers probably being Jewish. He was deliberately shocking them as he writes these words. Some of you would have been here last week. I know it's holiday time, so a number of you won't. But last week in verses 1 to 4, we saw a leper approach Jesus. He was unclean in Jewish thinking because of his skin disease. This week the Roman centurion approaches Jesus and he would have been considered unclean because he was a foreigner and a foreigner working for the enemy to boot. See, the way Matthew begins chapter 8 really should astonish us. The leper comes to Jesus, the leper who should have been excluded from the kingdom of heaven because of his physical condition, yet through his humble faith in Jesus he's made clean and accepted back into God's kingdom. And now the centurion comes to Jesus, a man who should have been excluded from the kingdom of heaven because of his race. That's how the Jews would have thought. And at this point, we ought to be thinking, surely he's not going to be ushered into God's kingdom too, is he? It really is shocking. But Matthew here is deliberately setting before us two living examples of Jesus' teaching from the sermon that he's just preached, the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in chapter, chapters 5 to 7. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven. It began with uh, these words in chapter 5, verse 3. It began, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then right at the end of the sermon, just as he's finishing the sermon, Jesus said these words in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be in? And who thinks they're going to be in? But actually isn't. Now if we didn't get just how revolutionary Jesus' teaching is in the sermon that he's just preached in chapters 5 to 7, we really certainly begin to see it from these first two incidents in chapter 8. Again, in Jewish thinking, the Roman centurion was a spiritual outcast because of his race 
Any Jew worth his salt would have been quick to tell this centurion and actually quite pleased to tell him that he would not be going to heaven when he died. But here he is approaching Jesus and the description of his approach to Jesus in verses 5 and 6 tell us more about this man. As we've already considered, he was a centurion. Now, now look, I was pretty hopeless at, at, at school, at, at almost everything, but certainly at history. Uh, I dropped it long before I took O-levels. But you don't have to be an historian or even an expert in Roman history to glean significant information from the fact that this man was a Roman centurion. The hint is in the name. A centurion either means he's just hit 100 in a test match or he has 100 men at his command. And this morning I'm presuming it's the second. So with 100 men under him, we can see that he'd, he'd risen through the ranks. And then when you read verse 6 and see that this man had a, a servant, there's no question he was successful. In civilian terms, he'd climbed the corporate ladder. He wasn't right at the top of the tree, but he certainly wasn't at the bottom either. He was relatively successful in middle management. May have lived in a leafy neighbourhood like Fullwood. But what is most noteworthy about this man is the first, uh, in these first verses is his, is his humility. Do you see it there at the end of verse 5? He came to Jesus asking for help. Here is a leader in the occupying force approaching an insignificant preacher man and asking for help. Successful as he was, there came a day when he realised there are some things in life that are out of control. On this day he faced up to the fact that he, even he, this successful man, needed help. Verse 6, his servant was paralysed and in terrible pain. And so the centurion humbled himself. He went to Jesus because there was no one else who could help him. Seeing someone sick and suffering and facing death does make us realise our helplessness. I've experienced exactly that recently with my dear mum. As I sat by her bedside as she was dying, I was very aware of my helplessness. And come to that, the helplessness of everyone around me. Now don't get me wrong, uh, the care she received while she was dying was magnificent. But in this day and age when we are tempted to believe that medicine and scientific advances can rescue us from anything, cure us of everything, when someone is dying you begin to realise that it's just not true and you feel acutely your own utter helplessness. It is a horrible situation to go through but it does bring us face to face with reality. In truth we are very fragile and extremely vulnerable. Oh, when life's going well and we seem to have everything under control and when we're flourishing, when we feel as if we can control our own destiny, well, then we feel we're almost indestructible. It often takes serious sickness to bring us to our senses. When life's good, we don't think we need Jesus, even as Christians. Just after mum's death, I was reflecting with the pastor who took her funeral how death puts everything in perspective. You see, in my mum's death, I had a clarity of thought that was very arresting. I knew my helplessness and my utter dependence upon the Lord. But most of the time, most of the time, it's very easy, even as Christians, to live without trusting in God. Day by day, we can get by, or so we think we can. In the normal routine of life, we can cope, or so we think we can. We don't feel the need to really trust Jesus, do we? 
just check out your prayer life. I guess most of us don't wake up in the morning driven to our knees, feeling vulnerable, powerless and helpless. My guess is that when we wake up each morning, most of us feel that we could get through life today, whether we trusted God or not. Which is, is, I guess, why sometimes we don't bother to pray. But when death visits us, when terrible suffering comes, as it did to the household of this Roman centurion, then we feel vulnerable and know our need very clearly. This successful man, who was doing very nicely, thank you very much, could do absolutely nothing about the terrible suffering of his paralysed servant lying at home. And so he turned to Jesus. And that is so often the environment in which faith grows. That's what Jesus taught at the beginning of of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, the verse that I've already quoted, the verse that kicks off the sermon. Uh, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, when you know your spiritual poverty, when you know that you have nothing, nothing to offer God, when you know your helplessness, then you can enter the kingdom of heaven, for then you turn to Jesus, and he is the gateway to God's kingdom. And so, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you feel your spiritual poverty. It's what we've seen in the first two encounters with Jesus in chapter 8. Last week, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, it was the leper. He knew his poverty of spirit. He knew his great need. This week it's the centurion. He was needy, poor in spirit. But unless or until you're aware of your spiritual poverty, you don't come to Jesus. No need to. Listen, we don't need to face personal tragedy to see our poverty of spirit. Look at the world we live in. I despair sometimes when I read the newspaper and watch the television. The drought in East Africa, the tragic events in Norway recently, the uprisings in Libya and Syria, the global economic crisis. When we open our eyes to all that is going on around us, we should all feel what the centurion felt that day. We are surrounded by issues that are out of our control. It's all too big for us. Presidents and prime ministers can't deal with this problem. We do need help living in this broken and hurting world. The centurion knew that and so he turned to Jesus and Jesus commended him for his faith. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. When Jesus heard this, that was uh, all that the centurion had said in verses 8 and 9, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished And said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It is uh, quite something to astonish the Son of God. Now look at the words that left Jesus astonished. Jesus said in verse 7, I will go and heal your servant. Or more literally, he was asking a question. Am I to come and cure him? Am I to come to your home and cure him? Am I, a Jew, to come to your home? You, a Roman centurion. And the centurion replied, verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve you to have, uh, to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes, and that one come and he comes. 
And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Here's the astonishing faith of the centurion. The centurion knew that Jesus had divine authority. The centurion knew that Jesus was not just an insignificant preacher man. In verse 9, we see that the centurion didn't just have faith, he had faith in Jesus. He knew that Jesus had authority, the authority of God Almighty. And of course the centurion knew all about authority. He was a a military man. In verse 9 he said, when I give orders to the men under my command, they act. I say go and they jolly well go. I say stop and they instantly stop. No questions asked. Of course anyone in the army knows that. And when a lieutenant is is promoted to captain and that, that third little pip burns there on his shoulder, he feels so proud and he says to the soldier under his command, go. That soldier may have been in the army 10 or 15 years longer than him, but he goes because the newly promoted captain possesses the authority of the the major above him and the lieutenant colonel above him and the brigadier above him and the major general above and so on. In fact, as he commands that soldier to act, his rank gives him the authority of the army and the government, so that soldier must obey. You don't have to be in the army to understand authority. When civilians, we civilians understand it too. Uh, When that fresh-faced policeman orders you to pull over, you pull over. Even though he looks as if he's only just left kindergarten and his his face has never seen a razor, still you stop because he has all the authority of the government behind him. You might not be happy about it, but it's the way it is. The centurion understood authority. We understand authority. And the centurion saw that Jesus had not just any authority, but the greatest authority in the universe, divine authority. Verse 8, Lord, I don't deserve you to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. This is not just any authority. This this astonishing faith of the centurion knew that Jesus' authority wasn't from any man-made structures. He had far superior authority. He saw that Jesus had authority over sickness. He knew that with just the word, Jesus could heal the man. That is amazing. Just as God, with a word, had created the world, so Jesus, with a word, had the authority to recreate this broken world and to deal with paralysis and terrible suffering. It was that understanding, that faith, that so astonished Jesus in verse 10. The astonishing faith of the servant. Secondly, uh, and more briefly, the astonishing teaching of Jesus in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now here's where the original readers would have really been rocked to their boots. Oh, verses uh, 5 to 9 were astonishing in themselves. But this, the Roman centurion, a foreigner working for the occupying force, is accepted by Jesus and according to Jesus is acceptable to God and included in his kingdom. 
But if that's not shocking enough, Jesus says in verse 11 that people from the east and the west, people from all over the world, people from way outside the borders of Israel, foreigners just like this centurion, many of them will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. While, verse 12, Israelites, religious, God-fearing, law-keeping men and women of the promised race will be thrown outside of the kingdom and left to spend eternity in darkness and suffering forever parted from God. Do you see how astonishing this teaching of Jesus is? People who consider themselves God's people will not go to heaven when they die. Uh, In verse 10, Jesus speaks of a banquet. And that's how eternity in the new heavens and the new earth begins. A great banquet, the like of which even royalty have never seen or tasted. It will be the most sumptuous and delicious and extravagant banquet ever seen because when God throws a party, he does it in style. And as uh, Jesus uh, said these words, I imagine that he was thinking of Old Testament passages like Isaiah Chapter 25. Now come back with me, if, if you will. Keep a finger in Matthew uh, 8. But come back with me to Isaiah 25 and page 708 uh, in, in the Old Testament. Page 708. I think these are the sorts of words that are in Jesus' mind as he uh, speaks of this great banquet. We had them read earlier. Look at Isaiah chapter 25, page 708. Isaiah 25. And verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. At this banquet, the, the host is God himself. He prepares a rich feast with the best wine, the choicest cuts of meat, and that is just the beginning of what he has in store. As magnificent as this banquet will be, still, this extravagant spread will just be an introduction to a wonderful eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where, do you see in verse 8, death is eradicated, suffering is eliminated, and scandal is exterminated. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace from his people from all the earth. What a place. That's where Jesus wants to take us. That's why Jesus died on the cross, which we'll be remembering and celebrating and rejoicing in a bit later on in this service. He died on the cross to bring us forgiveness so that we, unclean like the leper last week, Foreigners to the kingdom of heaven, like the centurion this week, so that we could be part of the kingdom of heaven. And one day, on that final day, be brought into the fulfilment of his kingdom and enjoy a world without suffering, the world that we all want. This is a recurring theme throughout the book of Isaiah. Isaiah regularly punctuates, indeed summarises his book with with talk of the new heavens and the new earth. It's where the whole book is heading. It's how the book ends in, in chapter 65. 
And indeed, the first time it's mentioned in in Isaiah, in chapter 2, we read the most astonishing words. Just uh, flip back with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 2, page 686. Page 686. This is the first time the new heavens and the new earth is mentioned in Isaiah. Isaiah 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills. And listen, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples, not many people, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All nations foreigners being brought into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Isaiah taught and that's what we see Jesus demonstrating with the centurion and then teaching in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11. Come back with me then to Matthew uh, chapter 8. This was astonishing teaching from Jesus that uh, yeah, everybody from all nations would be brought into the kingdom. It was astonishing teaching from Jesus, but it wasn't new. It was all there in the book of Isaiah. Yet still, the Jews of Jesus' day would have found it hard to accept, just as serious Jews today would find it hard to swallow, that those who are not Jesus would be given a place in the kingdom of heaven. But it is the next verse that is truly astonishing for all Jews. Verse 12. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The very people who are subjects in God's kingdom are thrown out of the kingdom when it matters most at the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Thrown out into a place of eternal suffering, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, The Bible writer Dick uh, France points out the shock of this verse in these words. Quote, Darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth which were symbolic Jewish descriptions of the fate of the ungodly are incredibly to be the experience of the sons of the kingdom. Verse 12, you see, is a shock of being told you're not going to heaven when you die. And it's such a shock because it's declared by Jesus and to those who thought they were safe. Imagine how you and I would feel, we who attend church regularly, we who consider ourselves to be part of God's people, part of his family. Just imagine being told that we won't go to heaven when we die. And imagine being told that by Jesus. That's what's going on here in verse 12. And if that's not shocking enough, imagine being told that by Jesus on judgment day when it's too late. And then being taken away to spend all eternity outside of the kingdom of heaven in darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The issue could not be more important. I guess I feel it more acutely now than I have done for a while. Death is all around me. On Monday last week I went to my mum's funeral. On Tuesday we interred her ashes. On Wednesday we arrived home to find the, the rabbit had died. I mean, not the most important thing in view of everything else, but it hit us. On Thursday, I was told that John Stott had died. I wondered what was going to happen on Friday. The week between, uh, before that, between my mum's death and her funeral, I'd had a meeting with Andrew Rees, and we discussed all that was happening here. 
We spoke of two people so seriously ill that they would probably die soon. We spoke of dear Christine Allsop's death. And we spoke of the death of little baby Louis Nex, four months old, whose funeral I conducted here, just here, last Wednesday. Death is all around us. I feel it very acutely right now. But believe me, death does focus the mind. And it makes you realise what really matters. Eternity becomes very real. And so words of Jesus like this become more poignant and have more urgency than normal. So let me plead with you to take these words seriously. Don't be like the Jews who would have first heard these words and said, no, 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 that can't be me. I won't be outside the kingdom. I'm religious. I keep the law. I'm a good Jewish person. Let me plead with you to ask yourself, will I be one who will take my place at God's banqueting table? Am I sure of that? And if you say, yeah, I am sure of that, then let me just ask you this, what is your confidence based on? Look at the centurion this morning. It is not those who are religious who will spend eternity in the kingdom of heaven. It is those who humbly come to Jesus, aware of their spiritual poverty, putting their trust, their faith in Jesus, recognising his authority. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is those who throw themselves on his mercy, knowing that he died for them, knowing that they have no right to enter heaven themselves. They will be the ones who will take their place at the feast in the new heavens and the new earth. See, whether you and I enjoy eternity or endure eternal suffering for eternity depends purely on our response to Jesus. The centurion shows us that faith in Jesus, in him being the one who has the authority of Almighty God, faith in Jesus is the way I enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the astonishing teaching of Jesus here is that many Jews, many religious people, don't have that saving faith in Jesus. Finally, and very briefly, as we close, we, we must ask, how can we be sure that this astonishing teaching of Jesus is right? And how can we be sure that the astonishing faith of the centurion isn't misplaced? And for that we look at the final verse, verse 13, and what I call the astonishing healing of the servant. See, verse 13, Jesus then said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. It is remarkable. Uh, Jesus didn't go to the centurion's house. He, he didn't go to the servant at all. The centurion was right in verse 8. Jesus just had to say the word. And that's what he did in verse 13. He said, go, it will be done just as you believed it did and his servant was healed at that very hour. No doubt there was much discussion about the exact time the servant got better. There had been much checking of watches. But as they checked it out, sure enough, the centurion's servant was healed at the very moment Jesus spoke the word go. Jesus delivered on the promise of verse 7. The centurion's assessment was right in verse 8. 
And here's the key thing. As Jesus healed the servant, we see that he does have the divine authority the centurion believed he had. He had the authority to heal the servant and crucially, he does have the authority to take a man away from terrible suffering. That's how the the centurion described the servant's condition in verse 6, do you remember? And so the servant's condition was a micro picture of the terrible suffering of eternity that Jesus taught about in verse 12. And so as Jesus healed the servant, he was drawing back the curtain to give us a glimpse of things beyond the grave and to give us a glance at what he can do for every man and woman who has real faith in him. In verse 13 we see, oh yeah, Jesus can deliver. He performed this astonishing healing of the servant in time to demonstrate that he can deliver people from suffering in eternity. Question? Will you go to heaven when you die? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Well, let's uh, pray now.